Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. It is Sunday, April 4, 2021, and we are going to be talking about a few things here on too many lawyers. First, we're going to revive Moron of the Week, Connor. We used Can't to wait. do that. Uh, I missed it. Terrific, fun uh, CRN show uh, on video and audio, courtesy of Mike Horn, who uh, runs that joint. And we always we talk about the Moron of the Week candidates, and we've got a, a doozy uh, this week. We're also going to talk about the uh, recall election in California for uh, Governor, Grus- uh, Governor Newsom. Some people call him gruesome. I don't know why. I He's don't know guy. why they would. He doesn't look gruesome. Yeah. Uh, I think it's one of his problems. He's too good looking. You know, oh, that's it. Yeah. Huge, huge hair. problem in politics is to be yeah. too good. I hate and it. He has hate no it. body fat. Yeah. Absolutely mm-hmm. 0%. <laughs> uh, we all hate him for that. <laughs> and we're also going to talk about our personal political turning, turning points. points. Yeah, we turning talked points. about our turning origin points. stories a few weeks ago. And Connor explained how he got on a misguided uh, course. Yeah, yeah. But now he's going to elaborate. And yeah. so uh, we hope that'll be interesting. So moron of the week. So here's my candidate. Uh, there was um, an NBC News uh, correspondent, Kerry Sanders, who uh, took uh, the opportunity of the uh, one-year anniversary of COVID to comment that essentially what his message was, well, of course, it's, it's bad that so many people, 2.8 million people actually, actually died from COVID. But the upside is the earth got a break, he said. Yeah. From an environmental How standpoint. Great. Yeah, he, he said that... Uh, for example, that uh, when the nation and world shut down, planet Earth got a rare break. And for the first time, we saw more deer and turkeys near Boston, dolphins swimming in a quieter New York harbor and waterways in Venice so clear you could see the jellyfish. I don't know. I think it's a little insensitive considering the 2.8 million people who died as a result. Yeah, 500,000 plus Americans. It really is the tone on that is just it's bonkers to me. I mean, how can you write that? Well, the thermonuclear blast wiped out half of the eastern seaboard. But you know what? Uh, the plants are growing back now and the squirrels seem to be enjoying. by human beings. Like, yeah, come on, dude. Them. If you want to talk about the impact of, uh, you know, like fewer, like less economic activity during COVID and its impact on the planet. Sure. But you've got to couch that in the right language. You've got to describe that the right way. You've got to say, this was obviously a tragedy. And then, you know, but it did have these economic effects and talk about them in effectively cold terms. Yeah, and draw lessons in terms of environmentalism. And that's fine. Good. But don't don't have this flowery sort of extolling the virtues of COVID. As as famously said on Twitter, you do not under any circumstances have to hand it. To COVID. Yeah. It doesn't, it, you don't, a, don't need to do it. What a jerk. This correspondent was talking to a University of Miami professor, and the reporter used the word gift to refer to the global killer Ugh. that wrecked economies and put millions out of work. He said, quote, nobody would have wanted to see this pandemic, but from a science standpoint, the data you've collected is a gift. And this professor, Ben Kurtman, uh, then said, yeah, it's a gift to the science. It's also a gift to us, to society, to the human race. It, it demonstrates we can do, th- do this. We can do this. We need a global pandemic 
to make it happen. I mean, and honestly, this uh, relatively mild form of a global pandemic in terms of like what could have been done and how bad it could have been is almost proof that we can't do it right. Like a lot of people are looking around at COVID and saying, well, if it had been 5% worse in this aspect or that aspect in terms of, you know, virality, or transmissibility uh, or, or lethality or whatever, it still would have spread just as much, but killed more people would have multiplied exponential effects. We could all be dead right now. It could yeah. all be over lights out for um, humanity. And yet we're all patting ourselves on the back while we're uh, inundated with new viral strains and variants that are more lethal or more transmissible or whatever else saying we did it boys let's go you know get back out there and go to walmart oh my god i mean talk about insensitivity this correspondent he finished off by saying well what have we learned this last year well even though covid remains a disaster many of us can work from home we don't need to drive everywhere and if we hold on to that scientists say we can positively impact global climate change climate change this happened in just a year i mean this is like the the uh this is people who are not uh, as as the left would say these are people aren't checking their privilege they don't understand the amazing privilege position from which they speak i have worked largely from home all year it's been great in many many ways it's also been negative in some ways but overall it's been a huge positive and yeah I'm not commuting. And I get bonus hours every yeah, but day. But you understand the perspective. I, yeah, I go yeah. out there and I don't say this was a gift to me that I don't have to commute anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah, there I are mean, more than half a million people dead in this country. This you can't guy, call it a gift. This guy is ignoring the incalculable oh human suffering with the ripple effect on the families and friends of the victims. I lost my best friend of 50 years to COVID. I really don't care that the turkeys can frolic near Boston and the dolphins are swimming in a quieter New York Harbor. So, sir, you've just earned the title on Too Many Lawyers, Moron of the Week. He may be Moron of the Month. It's going to be hard to unseat him. I think so. So let's talk about the recall election in California. Governor Newsom is, uh, he's probably doing okay if you believe the surveys. I think uh, there was something like, you know, 70% thought uh, we should stick with him. Uh, maybe it was a little less than that. Maybe it was 65 to, to, to uh, 45, something like that, or 35. Uh, but it, it's, it's, no, it's no guarantee, and, and especially if some Democrats jump in to the election. But, but let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts. And here's a very weird nut and bolt nominee. Uh-huh. It proves that the apple doesn't fall from the tree. Uh, now, I'm no fan of Nancy Pelosi, so perhaps you won't be surprised that I'm about to be critical of her no. daughter, Nancy Jr. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that's her name, but she's the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. Sure. So Nancy Pelosi Jr.'s approach, she's a political <laughs> operative. Her approach is this. She says, okay, so the recall election for Gavin Newsom, the Democrat governor in California, is coming up probably in September. We're going to keep our eye on the public opinion surveys. And if it looks very much like he's going to lose, and heaven forbid a Republican might be governor in California. Heaven forbid. Even though both halves of the legislature still have a supermajority. So anything that the the legislature passes, the governor's veto will be overruled. But no, we can't even have a governor briefly until there's another regular election. So here's Nancy Jr.'s approach. She says, if it looks like Gavin's going to lose... We'll have him resign, and Lieutenant Governor Elena Kunalakis will automatically become governor when he resigns. And guess what? There won't be a recall election because there's no 
you know, Gavin Newsom to recall. So all the signatures. There won't even be the, uh, an election. Exactly. You will not because the recall was to recall him. Right. That's why people signed. Too many yeah. people signed. True. But, so Elena Kunalakis, she's, you know, if you want to recall her, start it over. Fire up the engines again. Yeah. But of course, she doesn't have swept back hair and no body fat. So I don't think we'd be getting rid of her. <laughs> so that's Nancy Jr. I'm wow. so proud of Nancy Jr. Because Smart. she's following in the family tradition. That is devious. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's the point. It screws the will of the people. Thank you, Nancy Jr. Well, yeah, because the idea being that really, I mean, I mean, it, it goes to it goes to show you that the ridiculous nature of the recall system, right? It's the rules that were written that way with this loophole available. If it turns out to be, I'm sure the California Supreme Court would end up weighing in on it if they tried. Yeah, but it sounds reasonable because I mean, again, it does. You know, the signature signers the they really, didn't want to get rid of Elena. The they really want question, to get rid of Newsom. Yeah. The, the question really is when you have a recall election. Are you voting to get rid of this individual or are you really voting to get rid of the party that's You can argue power? it before the California Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it sounds like a, a, a case of really strange, bizarre rules that frankly just yep. well, don't, so, make, don't reflect what the will of the people. All those people who signed those, those ballots, I mean, those, uh, you know, added those signatures, they may well have been trying to get Democrats out of office and Republicans in. I don't think so. Yeah, I don't. I, probably knows? it's not just a bunch of Republicans. Probably it's a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of uh, uh, Democrats. Given that it's California, but it's possible. So let's get into some of the less controversial, but nonetheless important and interesting nuts and bolts about the recall in okay. California. To trigger the recall, the opponents of Newsom needed a million and a half signatures which is 12% of the total votes in the last gubernatorial race. That's what you need to get the recall on the ballot. Okay. At that point, the petitioners, interestingly, everybody who signed and about 2 million plus signed, they have a whole month to change their mind. They can call up the secretary of state and say, you know what, I, I'm one of those people, but I want it taken off. So, How strange. Yeah, so that happens. So then the lieutenant governor, once they've sorted out all the opt-outs, probably wouldn't be many of those. About five, yeah. So the lieutenant governor he needs to schedule an election under the law within... 60 to 80 days. So the ballot, when it appears before people, has two choices. One is yes or no, up or down on Gavin Newsom. And if a majority says we, we like him, keep him, then it, that's the end of it. But if a majority says we want him out, then you move to question number two. Who on the ballot, maybe 50, 100 people have qualified for the ballot, do you want? Now, one of the people on the other ballot, of course, cannot be Gavin Newsom. That's part of the rules. And as we saw last time, years ago, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was number one with a bullet. Uh, right. He won, obviously, because he was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so Republican Kevin Falconer probably is sort of the leader in the clubhouse now in terms of, of maybe somebody that could replace Newsom if Newsom loses. Falconer is a former San Diego um, mayor. He is pro-choice. He's an outspoken supporter of the LGBT community. He even championed the climate action plan uh, in San Diego. So he's not your typical, you know, right wing. Right, he's like a California Republican. Yeah, kind of. I mean, Another, he's got to he's got to get votes from the whole state, not just Orange County. So it makes sense. He does, and uh, he's already got OC locked up. No Republican in OC, given the chance to replace Gavin Newsom, is going to say, uh, "I'm going to vote no on Gavin Newsom, but yes on some random wacko, probably pinko other choices on the ballot." 
ballot because right. it's all Californians. Right. Uh, another possibility is Republican John Cox. He has launched his bid for the House than the Senate in Illinois 20 years ago. And, and then he has wants- slightly more name recognition than Falconer. Yeah, right. But right Falconer's now, before, been on the airwaves a Yeah, lot. until, until uh, uh, the media starts blasting about the candidates that things will change. So then Republican John Cox decided he was going to run for president in 2008. That didn't work out too well. Right. And then he, he ran more seriously in 2018 against Newsom, and it was the hugest California landslide uh, uh, victory for a Republican, for a governor uh, since 1950. And so he doesn't exactly have a great track record. Yeah. Uh, When we come back, we are going to talk about a very prominent Democrat who has wanted to be governor for a long time in California, who just might step in Mm. that might upset the Newsom apple cart. But first, Connor is going to let you know how you can rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Yeah, thanks for listening, folks. And if you like today's episode, uh, our other episodes will delight you. So check us out on whatever podcast platform uh, you use. That's probably Apple Podcasts, but it might be some other podcast platform. Like if you use Android, it could be Podcast Addict or Stitcher or Spotify or whatever. Um, And make sure that you're subscribed to us so you get notifications. Either subscribe or on Apple Podcasts, it's called Follow. Um, Drop us a like or a review or a comment in the uh, comment section. Um, And uh, Royal also has a new SoundCloud. So look for Royal Oaks on SoundCloud and leave him a review on his uh, new It's the Law segment. And we'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So, Connor, uh, Democrat Antonio Villaraigosa, former mayor of Los Angeles. rival. He was the uh, Speaker of the Assembly, of course, for years. He ran for governor in 2018, Mm -hmm. but lost in the jungle primary, which you and Ken Jeffries and I used to love to talk about on on the CRN show. Uh, And he ended up endorsing Newsom, of course. Uh, he apparently is interested in getting his name on the ballot. Uh, there's some other Democrats, Kevin DeLeon, a very progressive politician in California, Democrat Tom Steyer. Uh, he is a donor, a hugely wealthy guy. He was a 2020 presidential candidate. You yeah. remember seeing him in the early debates. The debates, yeah. Which included the people who had no cho- right. chance to right, win. Right, right, right. But a lot of name recognition comes out of being on a presidential debate stage. Sure. So that's a huge deal. Yeah, absolutely. And these guys actually have a very good chance because even if... People are unhappy specifically with Newsom. COVID went badly. They didn't like how it was handled. They might still be staunch Democrats, given that we're talking about California here. And so even if you you ixnay on Newsom, a guy like Falconer or Cox are still going to have a massive problem getting past somebody with a name recognition on in the Democratic Party of a Villaraigosa or a De Leon. I mean, these are... Big, big names in California politics. And this is really an unusual thing to have a a recall deal. 55 times in California history, there have been attempts to recall a governor. Only one time did it make it to the ballot, and that was Gray Davis in 2003. Poor Gray. And it worked. So the signatures are going to be totaled. The final tally, we are told, will be by April 29. The candidates then, get this... Once the final tally is approved by the authorities, the candidates have only 24 hours to file paperwork, depending on how quickly the election occurs, because you have to have 60 days between the filing and the certification of the candidates. So that's kind of weird. I mean, you could if you've got one day to do it, even though you've been planning, you could be aced out by this weird rule of only having one day. It's wild. Uh, so the election then, as I mentioned before, is going to be 60 to 80 days from the recall actually qualifying for the ballot. And interestingly, the recall ballot could have some initiatives on it as well. The tobacco companies have a referendum teed up to 
overturn the ban on the sale of flavored tobacco products. That could be on the ballot. And, you know, maybe this ballot wouldn't draw as much attention as a typical November or, pr- or primary ballot. So maybe they figure we got a better chance to inundate the state with our advertising. Also, the effort to lift the cap on California's negligent uh, payments in terms of medical negligence, uh, that could be on the ballot as well. The the folks who want to increase medical malpractice verdict possibilities have been uh, working on that for years and actually decades. And also legalization of sports betting in tribal ca- casinos is going to be on the ballot. And finally, a ban on single-use plastic packages could be on the ballot as well. The really interesting thing, Connor, is going to be whether Democrats uh, near the the time of putting your name on the ballot, will say, you know, the conventional wisdom is it's best for Gavin Newsom if we, the other popular Democrats in the state, stay out of things. Yeah. And if they can't resist, like a Villaraigosa says, you know, I don't really care. I'm going to make if, my move. Yeah, I'm going to make my move. And that could cause more people to vote against Newsom because they see more popular Democrats on uh, running and seeing TV ads and they think to themselves, oh yeah, I think I'd rather have Antonio than right. to have Newsom. So right. it could kind and of split the, the Democrat the fact party. that you have this flowchart vote system where those Democrats say no to Newsom and then get us to uh, that plus yes on Villaraigosa means that otherwise if they just don't show up to the ballot box, even if they just don't even turn out, it might as well be you know, a vote for uh, uh, Newsom because uh, not showing up means he's more likely to uh, Newsom's more likely to win that first part of the flow chart of does he get kicked out? So it's a really interesting question. It is, it, it, you know, the Democrats get screwed coming and going. They get, you know, the fact that they are going to compete against one another in that down ballot part uh, for who's the replacement. Uh, but all of the Democrats who support a guy like Leona or, or, or Villaraigosa are going to screw over Newsom in step one. So it's really, really dangerous for the uh, Democrats. So let's now get to uh, the continuation of our origin stories. Uh, yeah. Connor, uh, you and I have been thinking that it, that it's it's kind of fun to, to talk about and, and share ideas of how we came to our positions. You're progressive. I'm libertarian. And uh, last week we talked about how you, know, you as a kid were exposed around the house to political talk. Uh, now, I believe your mom almost always talked about things like her recipes for hot cross buns uh-huh. and fudge. Yeah, she and had, fudge. No, she had, she had no strong opinions. Pretty much yeah. it was all cooking. Uh-huh. Whereas uh-huh. I, you know, was pretty conservative, kind of slash libertarian. Yeah. And so you started out as a kid, I think because of being exposed to talk around the house, you, you were kind of right of center, but then off you go to college right. and then things changed. Yeah. I, I mean, elaborate. I, so this, this, yeah, this topic I wanted to talk about is about that change and what drives that change and what drove that change for me. And I'm really interested to hear the, the sort of biggest change and turning points in your life, because I know you've had several big political phases where you had felt, I mean, you were at one point like a Goldwater Republican, and now you wouldn't call yourself that at all. You'd say, well, I'm a, I'm a, a libertarian. And while those things are obviously related and connected, and there's reasons connecting them, you did make big changes. And I well, also I don't know how big changes. they were, because I went from being a Goldwater Republican, he ran for president as a Republican, to being a Nixon Republican, he had run for president as a Republican, to being a Reagan uh, Republican. Right. Big, changes. Ran, yeah. big changes. To being a George Bush. The, the changes were pretty dramatic. Pretty like, dramatic, uh, yeah. A mad pendulum swing yeah, yeah, back yeah, and yeah, forth. Yeah. So I would say my biggest political turning point issue, the issue that led me down the path I went and away from where I was at the moment, was actually separation of church and state. When I was uh, a, a little card-carrying Republican conservative uh, in high school, I didn't entirely hew to the party line 
on religious issues, specifically the uh, the, the the degree to which uh, religion sort of uh, creeps into uh, public life and political life. I felt very, very, very strongly, even then, uh, I didn't believe in God, and I I felt very, very strongly that it was important that other people not be able to come in and legislate their own religious morta- morality on everybody else and impose this. And I saw a connection to the conservatism that I liked at the time of sort of freedom, individuality, and small government, and the idea that uh, this— you know that people would come in and instead use uh, their religious views to uh, to back legislation on things like abortion or other social issues, and that's how you became a libertarian. Exactly. Yeah. No, tell me how no, is so, it you didn't veer toward libertarianism then, as opposed to progressivism? Well, see, that's a that's a really good point. I from that point uh, in high school when I where I felt very strongly about that. If you'd asked me and described libertarian uh, libertarianism and asked me if I if I hewed to that, I probably would have said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But when it was when I went off to college and I met and talked to a lot of people who were liberal and you know in in describing conservatism, they they pointed out. I think rightly that conservatism, not liber- libertarianism, but conservatism is inextricably linked to this idea of using the government to enforce morality and do the right thing. That, you know, uh, that government should be a tool um, uh, to make the world look the way a conservative wants the world to look. And so I looked out there and, and that really threw me into this uh this this world of well we have separation of church and state for a reason it seems to be a very good reason it seems to be that that this set of ideas even the founders knew that there was deep and terrible disagreement among reasonable rational humans i mean a lot of people came to america from europe uh, because of religious discrimination and disagreement and the idea of enshrining religious discrimination or disagreement into the the government, that to me was uh, sort of abhor- it was abhorrent. But Wasn't there I, anything appealing to you about the sort of conservative uh, attitude toward morality so that, for example— uh, there are obscenity laws, right. and you, you can't uh, on the uh, on the airwaves just say anything you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are obscenity laws; you can't put up a billboard. The, you know, Larry uh, Flint of Hustler can't put up a, a gynecologically accurate billboard on Sunset <laughs> Boulevard. I mean, don't you support some of those impositions of our collective morality uh, on people? Yeah, that's a that's a really good that's a really good point. And I think actually the idea, firstly, you know. I think the idea of, of enshrining our puritanical values in law is a very dangerous one, and I would much rather err on the side of uh, not having a law uh, in, on that front and allowing that speech as opposed to erring on the side of, of, of preventing it, because I think the harms that it does uh, to have lewd material out there are low versus the harms of, of silencing speech are high generally. But the idea of, of using the government to 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 mold the world to be the to be the world that we all want to live in that was very attractive to me mm-hmm. in some aspects but not all aspects and the the separation of church and state line was a really bright line distinction for me where i was able to say well look liberals want to change the world in this set of ways to make the world better in this set of ways they want to make things like abortion access 
uh, uh, easier. They want to make access to education easier and and government assistance for people like a safety net, like unemployment insurance and to help people get, you know, housing uh, and whatever else other things that people need to to be productive members of society and actually have live happy, healthy lives. Um, That's very attractive to me. While I looked at the other side and I saw conservatives trying to use the power of the government to make sure that people didn't have weren't able mm-hmm. to have abortions and uh, to make sure that that a small group of people were allowed to make the most possible money under the name, the guise of, well, they, they have the right, the freedom, they're sort of Ayn, Ayn Randian, they deserve it, they're better than other people, that sort of thing. And so they both wanted to sculpt the world. And to so you your don't, point- you don't like, But you don't like people dictating morality, but on the other hand, why would that necessarily lead to a rejection of capitalism and an embracing of something closer to socialism? Well, you're, you're, you're right, actually, in part, that, that it doesn't. And actually, it wasn't that I didn't want people to legislate morality at all. I did want people, and I do want people to legislate morality. I want people to legislate, put into fact, into law, that it is bad to have homeless people dying on the street. It is bad to have children starving because they can't pay school lunch debt. It is bad to have lack of access to health care or public schools for kids or whatever. Those things, I want to legislate morality. What I don't want to legislate morality on is the topic that is so closely tied to conservatism, which is generally religion and religious values that get enshrined into law as as though they are morality. And in that way, I saw this big distinction where I was like, oh my gosh, conservatives are on one side of this, liberals are on another. And the libertarians, to your point, your earlier point, I'm finally <laughs> trying to address it, I apologize, is that the libertarians are trying to stand astride the two and say, whoa, don't legislate morality. Don't, d- don't try to tell me what's good or right. right. Society will, through the power of you know, the people, uh, arrive at norms that reflect the will of the people, and we will do it without government intervention and help. And I look around the world and I see they're, the, the, the fight's unequal, right? The, 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 the people who are living in parks and tents and starving and kids who can't pay school lunch debt are getting you know, brutally beaten in the war between Wall Street bankers and starving children. Like, it's not a fair fight. And so I think we do need to legislate. And that's why the the intermediary position, in a, in a way, intermediary position, libertarians, are, you know, people portray them as far, far right. And sometimes in some aspects they are. But in another way, they're the ones saying there's a third way, there's a third path. And that is don't use the government to do this, whereas conservatives want to use the government to do theirs. Liberals want to use the government to use theirs. So that, I think, was the biggest turning point for me to see separation of church and state, mm-hmm. the three possible ways to do it, yes, no, and get out of my face. And I went with the no. It's interesting that you use the phrase astride uh, the, the system because it, it conjures up uh, the image of a very famous remark by William Buckley, one of the fathers of modern conservatism. And in the late 50s, early 60s, he defined conservatism as those who stand astride history and yell stop. And, you know, of course, people hear that and say, oh, that's not it realistic. It sounds bad. <laughs> it sounds bad. It's not realistic. But, you know, he was prepared to defend his approach. So we've heard uh, Connor's origin story. When yeah, we come back, your, when we come back I'm going to hit you with mine. Nice. So stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So, our political origin story. And specifically, I want to hear the, the issue that for you 
uh, was a turning point and that changed who you were politically, why you felt the way you felt, and that sort of sculpted you into the human that you've become? Because I know you've gone through some transformations in politics. So I mentioned last week that when I was a kid, my dad who was a family doctor. He had a family practice in Huntington Park. And uh, it was great uh, fun for us because uh, my family did not like to fly because my grandfather had a saying. He said, if you, um, if you take a flight and it crashes, you'll be dead. If you, if you take a train and it crashes, you might walk away. And so we never flew. Wow. So when we took this trip that my father dreamed of all his life uh, in 1960 when I was seven, took a trip to uh, Europe. Did we take an airplane? Did we take Pan Am with those well-dressed uh, stewardesses? You no. swam. We rode. That's where you got your rowing acumen. <laughs> Connor was a champion rower at UC Santa Barbara. Yeah, champion. And uh, so uh, we took the SS Rotterdam you over. You took a boat? And the Queen Elizabeth coming back because we didn't want to oh fly. Right. Well, I mean, so, how long did that take? Oh, about five days. Wow. It's fun. As long as I mean, it's like a cruise, I guess. As long as you're not horribly seasick, it's actually a lot of fun. Were you horribly seasick? No. no okay, no. good. So anyway, um, sitting around the dinner table when I was a little kid, I, I got an earful about uh, socialized medicine because my doctor, like a lot of my dad, like a lot of doctors at the time, absolutely hated yeah. its guts. Sure. And so that got me started. But but as I thought about political issues over the years, I kind of developed what I uh, called a, a mission statement. And and to introduce it to you, let me. This is a linear story, which is the easiest way for me to understand things given my uh, limited cranial capacity. So to begin the story, there's the Big Bang, and of course, the Earth cooled, and then creatures crawled out of the soup. And before you know it, we've got humans, good and bad. Now, if a bad human comes around the corner thousands and thousands of years ago, you will soon be dead. Yeah, he will kill you. He will take your stuff. So folks came up with an idea about 300 years ago called the social contract. And it said, give power to a government, make a contract with the government. You give up your rights, some of them, they, you give them the power, and they have one big job, stop the big guys who come around the corner and are about to kill you from this mischief. But government sometimes committed mischief too, so we came up with a corollary to the social contract, which is, we get to fire you, people in the government. And it was a pretty good system, pretty, pretty good, to quote Larry David. Mm -hmm. So then we started to tinker with the system. So not only may we fire you, but in between firings, we need to make sure you make good choices. And here's your mission statement, according to Little Royal, that I've kind of stuck with over the years. On some occasions, you get to take some of our money, and sometimes you get to tell us what we can and cannot do, what we may and may not do. But if you want to take our money or tell us what we may or may not do, you have to be really sure it's for a very good reason. And it is not a good reason to do this kind of stuff, to buy votes, to keep your jobs. It is not a good reason because you hate some groups of people and want to hurt them. So we decide who we like in this life and who we hate based sometimes on race and sexual preference and income and nationality. And we have thus tro totally trampled on MLK's, I, you know, I dream of a day when we'll judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. So, so that's is, a that's a big that's a you know the 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 arc of history you know really led you that I mean, you're talking about like we may fire you as sort of a foundational idea of government. That's the Magna Carta, right? Yeah. And then uh, after that, there's the you 
you know, take our money, you've got to use it for certain purposes, and those purposes have to be really good. Right. You could really kind of say that that's a good encapsulation of like the United States Constitution, which was, you know, arguably the first of its kind Mm -hmm. in terms of documents that reflected the stuff that we think the government should be doing. And this paper will persist through time, although they, you know, obviously it comes with changes. uh, But the... uh, the the idea that you can only use the government for certain things, a lot of people would say that's most basic encapsulation would be like the 10th Amendment, that anything we didn't specifically say that you can do here in the federal government. Yeah, in the federal government is the powers power are left to the states, to the states and the states sort of in at that sense, represent at least one step closer to the people. What it really represents is the fact that the, you know, the guys that signed over the Constitution were already in, signed the Constitution were in power in the states. And so they were basically saying, if you don't get to do it, we get to do it. Right. But here's a problem with what you're saying. It it makes sense. And, you know, I think the 10th Amendment's a great idea. But you have bad people at the state government level as well as the federal government. Because the problem is most people involved in politics, whether it's the city, state or or federal level, they are elected officials or they're government employees or they're activist groups or they're organizations that lobby and pressure the government to take action. And these people are likely to ignore the mission statement that I described because they don't care about making sure government has a really, really strong reason for taking money or infringing on rights. They just want to win their fight. Yeah. I mean, we want to make sure lawmakers and judges have this really good reason for making decisions. And but I mean, this philosophy can, you know, guide you on any issue you can name immigration or income equality or affirmative action or guns or corporate welfare. I mean, what are the true motives of the decision makers and how can we stop the ones with the bad motives and both at the ballot box and in between elections? There are so few people you can cleanly and easily categorize as having bad intentions you know if there's somebody who wants to cheat to win an election How about everybody in washington in the last 30 years that's both the, parties that's exactly the problem corporate welfare Every, or give away welfare to buy votes everybody period right we have an adversarial system in the courts as you and i as lawyers both well know we do that because we have an advocate on each side a guy who's trying his darndest on one end and a person who's trying his darndest on the other end and they're pushing their own interests and only their own interests. Now, this is different in criminal where we idealize the idea that there's a district attorney who has an obligation to the truth. But in in a straight up lawsuit, we think that the best way to come to an outcome that's the, the, the correct outcome is to have both sides push only for themselves as hard as possible while still obeying the rules. And then we go to Washington and we see somebody, a lobbyist, as you just pointed out, you vilified the poor lobbyists. Uh, uh, believe me, I'm on your <laughs> board. I'm also vilifying the, the lobbyists. But they're pushing incredibly hard for the oil industry, or they're right. pushing incredibly hard for plastics, or they're pushing incredibly hard for corn farmers, or whatever. And the adversarial nature of politics is that more funding will end up in the hands of, you know, corn farmers or the oil industry or whatever else. Because people are up there pushing, you know, putting money behind it. And that's why I kind of like the whole populism movement, uh, because regardless of what their philosophy is, it it means the people can fight back against the politicians. Let me sort of concretize my my philosophy by talking about what's happened over the last several years. How did this drama play out? Mm -hmm. Occasionally, the system throws you a curve. Um, We, those of us who voted a certain way in 2016, uh, and, and actually I voted for the Libertarian, not the Republican, but I definitely voted against Hillary. We succeeded in 2016, I think, in stopping somebody, Hillary, with despicable values and motivations. But in the bargain, we got a narcissistic, 
ignorant, unprincipled ass. And after four years of marvelous policies he presided over, for which he deserves no credit because he has no principles, if the election cycle had called for a challenge by a progressive Democrat in 2016, he'd have been one. He was a lifelong pro-choice guy who would have been totally comfortable in that role as a candidate. But because it was time to run as a conservative Republican, he became intensely pro-life. And he appointed justices who may dismantle or substantially roll back Roe versus Wade. So after four years, the Republican Party has paid the price. The horse in the hospital has lost his re-election bid. And for those of you who don't follow that, you've got to YouTube John Mulaney, his genius monologue comparing Trump to a horse in the hospital. So Trump lost then to a guy who should have been easily beaten. And it's turning out to be a big price the Republicans are paying because thanks to Trump's post-election infantilism and his corrupt motivation and peddling his stolen election lie, he handed control of the Senate to the Democrats by letting two Democrats in Georgia, of all places, win United States Senate seats. Yeah. So... I don't know why Biden is doing what he's doing. Some people are convinced he's suffering from early dementia. They say he's a basically a Manchurian candidate whose rhetoric and his actions precisely mimic AOC and Liz and Bernie because their acolytes are writing what he struggles to read off the say teleprompter. Maybe, maybe Fox News is saying that, but no one on the some left. Some people, some people are saying, saying that. that. I'm not a psychiatrist, and even if I were, I wouldn't haven't examined him, so I wouldn't say that. I follow the Goldwater rule. Some people are convinced Biden is simply unwilling or unable to fight back against the tide of progressive pressure against a relentless stream of progressive talking points he gets. Some people think that he's been a secret progressive all along in spite of his reputation, uh, you know, is the great compromiser in the Senate. Some people think he has changed. uh, But I I don't know. I mean, from your perspective, I I think you don't believe he's really all that progressive or doing things that are all that progressive. From a Republican standpoint, they feel like it's the apocalypse. Yeah, I think if Biden was like a secret progressive or unable to hold back the progressive tide and was just being washed away by it, then we'd probably have more than one fourteen hundred dollar check for the for covering people's you know keeping people afloat during the pandemic when all these other countries who are actually left on the political spectrum unlike the american democrats who are dead center in terms of you know maybe even right of center i mean everywhere canada uh, uh, everywhere in europe they all to political scientists they they teach in school and they they write you know academic in academic papers about how both american parties are right of center that the, the Republicans are far right and the Democrats are barely right of center, if anything, uh, maybe even more right of center, uh, more, even more right than than in the center. This is this is a, a this is proof uh, that the outcomes that are happening in American politics right now are proof that Biden is not some puppet of the, the ultra left, which doesn't even exist, basically, in the United States. If he was a puppet or unable to keep hold back the tide or an empty shell or whatever other stuff Fox News is lobbing at him, then we'd have $2,000 monthly checks to pay people to stay home during the pandemic. Or we would have no more kids in cages at the border. Or we would have actual liberal policies. I'm not sure that we have kids in cages at the border because the Biden administration, I'm sorry, the Biden-Harris administration won't let us see video of the kids in the cages at the border. They are showing us video. They're very bad. Just some snippets. They're very bad videos. They're extremely horrifying. It's it's really, really bad. When even the NBC and the Washington Post say we need more transparency, then we probably need more transparency. Okay, so maybe we need more transparency, but it doesn't matter. It's not like we need to see more than we've seen. Liberals are united on this 
largely, except the ones who apologists who want to just apologize for anything the Democrats do. But uh, the, the actual left in America is saying you haven't improved conditions at the border enough. You have a you know, serious problem and you need to actually try to solve it. Now, th- this has caused a big backlash against AOC because people see that AOC is actually sort of uh, t- take towing the party line on this. And as said previously, you know, before Biden took office, that this is despicable and the system needs to change immediately. And there are ways we could change the system immediately. And then as soon as Biden takes office, AOC, made a, you know, went on uh, on the Internet and was, was speaking into a camera and said, basically, like, it's a really tough issue what we don't know what we can do and there are a lot of people on the left who are saying you do know what you could do it's let the people in the cages out of the cages we're only a few months into the administration but i think the reason that the republicans have what i consider to be a legitimate beef is that we have a president who in spite of the rhetoric of his inaugural address is acting as if the loyal opposition does not exist this unity thing give me a break everything he has done in his few months as president is utterly without any sense of compromise the stimulus package size the border policy the infrastructure deal the tax policy there is no conversation with the republican party he knows he's got a 50 50 deal that kamala harris can break the tie on and he knows he's got a shot he's already convinced joe manchin of west virginia to say well yeah joe's got an idea there about making people actually stand up and be exhausted and fall down during the filibuster i think that's just the first step i think in the next few months the pressure, the vice is going to be tightened on his head and they're going to get rid of the filibuster. And in spite of all the warnings by Mitch McConnell and his pals in the Senate about, hey, you know, your majority may only be temporary. We know it's only going to be temporary. We read the history books and here is a list of stuff what we're going to do when we have control of the Senate. None of that is making any impact. I think the progressives are saying to themselves, this is the golden hour. It's like the golden hour is, is the 60 minutes between your trauma and getting you to the trauma center in the hospital. That's when the life-saving activity happens after that, forget about it. I think they see these two years as the time to really shine, and it does not involve compromising with Mitch McConnell. Well, I mean, Mitch McConnell has never compromised and will never compromise with the Democrats, so it's completely pointless for them to try. And it's the Republicans were acting in bad faith by saying, well, why don't you come back and talk to us? Why won't you negotiate with us? You're not going to vote for anything that the Democrats put up anyway. So why would the Democrats negotiate against themselves as they keep doing anyway? When you say there's no notion of compromise, I'm sorry. We could have had $2,000 checks, but now suddenly it's a $1,400 because that's plus $600. That makes $2,000, and that's our campaign promise. That was a Republican concession. There's tons of concessions that they make for no good reason because they know they're never going to get a, a single Republican vote. So did any Republicans flip over when the Democrats said, okay, instead of going for $2,000 checks because we know that's a lot of money, we're going to go down to $1,400 checks. You Republicans wanted that. It's only going to be $2,000 total with the $600 previously. Will you vote for us now? Of course, no, they didn't vote for us. They're never going to vote for anything the Democrats do, because if they do, then that would give credence to the the Democrats' story that they're going for compromise. If Mitch McConnell lets a single Republican vote for a single one of Mitch, uh, for, of Joe Biden's bills, then Joe Biden will be able to say, sorry, Mitch, looks like I am a great compromiser. I stole uh, out from uh, your caucus and I you know, nabbed some Republican votes. And the American people will say, oh, wow, I guess Biden actually reached across the aisle and got someone to come, you know, made a concession. So Mitch McConnell can never let anyone step across the aisle because to do so would be to admit defeat. So that's the problem. It's Republicans that won't go across the aisle at all. And the Democrats have no reason to try. If you're right, then I mean, I don't see how the Republicans can accomplish anything in the next two years unless they compromise because they're going to lose every vote. But that's the joy of being a conservative is that you don't want to accomplish anything. Mm. You don't you want to grunt. You stand astride history and you say, stop. You say, I don't. 
don't want any progress That's to William ever Buckley. be made. That's right. William Buckley. I don't think that necessarily <laughs> represents the view He's our of, hero. of the 2021 Maybe GOP. Right. Maybe you're right. We've evolved. All right. Well, I think we've uh, added some... Uh, flesh to the bone of our origin stories. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, I actually have got a few more ideas on uh, elaborating a little further, uh, which uh, when we have more time next week, I can't will, wait. I will get into, and uh, and I can't wait about a little more on your origin story as well. So we'll wish a good week to everybody. We'll see you next Happy time. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to all, and we'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. <laughs>